Fort Monroe in Virginia has been defending America since 1607, and today it remains the largest stone fortification in the United States. Fort Ticonderoga, Fort Sumter, Fort McHenry can all, and Fort Adams can all fit inside. The National Trust for Historic Preservation is on a mission to preserve and share all of America's history. Saving all of America's important historic places is reliant on reaching all Americans. Some of the most authentic travel experiences and unique stories can be found in small and Rural towns where you can learn the origins of tomato juice or visit the Grand Central Station of the Underground Railroad. The beach resort of Swakopmund, Namibia, is an example of German colonial architecture and culture. But just outside this German enclave are settlements that were developed for indigenous Black Namibians. Get a new perspective on American history and Namibian culture just ahead on World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. Inside the German-inspired city of Swakopmund, Namibia, there are reminders of the apartheid era. The black townships of Modessa and the democratic resettlement community are where generations of black families have lived for decades. We'll meet a few members of the shantytown communities and give you a real flavor of life in Namibia later in the hour. Coming up on today's World Footprints radio show, we'll introduce some of Washington, D.C.'s historic hotels and we'll learn what the National Trust for Historic preservation is doing to preserve America's history. We'll also travel to some unique small towns and uncover some history that helped shape America. First, Fort Monroe's historian Robin Reed gives us the backstory on the largest stone fortification in America. And a walk through the museum with Robin takes us to the front line of early American history and shows us a different side of Robert E. Lee and Edgar Allan Poe. When the first settlers arrived here from Great Britain, the Jamestown colony, they came here in 1607. And people like Captain John Smith was here, and the very first thing they did when they got here was to go up the James River and kind of uh, explore things. In fact, they went all the way up to the fallout of Richmond, which is, of course, the capital of the Commonwealth now. But they came down here, and they were uh, they thought this was a really good place maybe to build their colony. But their instructions said that they really needed to have a place where they could actually anchor their boats to the shore. And with these big boats, this probably wasn't the right place to do that. So they went a little further up the, uh, up the waterway and went to Jamestown. That's where the first uh, English settlement was formed. But they knew this was going to be a very important defensive point for that fort because anybody that was going to come to Jamestown to the new settlement was going to have to pass this point. This bit of land that we're standing on today has actually been defending this country literally since 1607. And there have been many, many forts that have been washed away by many, many hurricanes. This one was uh, around 1830s that we built this and has been standing ever since. And you are standing inside the largest stone fortification in the United States. Fort Ticonderoga, 
Fort Sumter, Fort McHenry can all, and Fort Adams can all fit inside this fort. We know that the Native Americans uh, were here, the Virginia Indians uh, traded here on this uh, spot of land and uh, were able to uh, expand their community from here. So this is a very important historical uh, spot uh, for Virginia history and really the history of, uh, of our nation. So one of the things we learned here is you remember Robert E. Lee, who was a West Point graduate well before he became General Robert E. Lee, and he was hired as an engineer, and his job was really to finish the construction of the moat. Yeah, and there was a a bit of a controversy, I guess, with the post commander of the fort concerning this moat, and that controversy was encapsulated in some letters between Lee. Right, that were uncovered, essentially, where there was tension between Lee and the garrison troops because they were using the moat that he dug out as a trash pit. So yeah. the moment his guys dug out the moat... They'd fill it back in. Yeah. So that was a really interesting piece of trivia that we uncovered on that visit. And the other one... Edgar Allan Poe, the man whose poem, The Raven, inspired the name of my favorite football team, the Baltimore Ravens. As we go inside the Fort Monroe Museum, history comes alive as the stories echo off the walls. I wasn't a very good soldier. The main thing that Edgar Allan Poe tried to do when he was a soldier was get out of being a soldier. And uh, he didn't stay very long in the service. But actually, he was a fairly good uh, artillerist. He, uh, his job was to kind of figure out ranges for these guns and different uh, ways to fire them and how far they would go and uh, what angles to shoot them at. And he was a sergeant major of all things. Little did we know until our journey to Fort Monroe that Poe had left an impression here. With all of the rich history at Fort Monroe, President Barack Obama on November 1st, 2011, recognized much of this history mm-hmm. by designating Fort Monroe as a national monument that's right. now managed by the, the U.S. Park Service. Right. They had a new post commander coming in 1861. He was a politician. John by the name of Benjamin Butler had kind of made his mark up in Baltimore and Annapolis at the beginning of the war. The very first thing that General Butler did when he got here was to uh, make sure that the Confederate troops quit shooting at his soldiers. So he attacked the uh, town of Hampton. The town of Hampton caught on fire, was burned to the ground, and pretty much came in no man's land. As we walk through Fort Monroe's Casemate Museum, the chronicle of military history continues to bounce off the walls, and we learn that the story of Benjamin Butler has a lighter side. Ben Butler was not a very attractive man. In fact, his fellow officers thought he was so ugly they thought he was single. In fact, they called him the Beast. He wasn't very well liked down in New Orleans either. For one thing, he confiscated silver. That's why they call him Spoon's Butler. They also told the southern ladies there that they didn't quit spitting on the soldiers. He was going to call them uh, ladies of the evening. They didn't like that very much either. The South so hated Benjamin Butler that they uh, created a piece of art for, for him and his mom. And that is by painting his you know, dear, I'd never heard of Benjamin Butler until we took this tour of Fort Monroe, and it's really interesting to find out how his actions really pushed forth emancipation based on war strategies, essentially. Right. And following that, the Civil Rights Act, I mean, we're fast-forwarding 100 years, 
but he played a critical role in freeing fugitive slaves and leading to President Lincoln's actions. Indeed. You know, one of the things that was pretty novel about his approach was in declaring fugitive slaves as contraband Mm -hmm. in war, effectively saying that they don't have to go back. Well, dear, you know, as lawyers, we understand the concept of chattel, and his argument was that Virginians, people in the Confederacy, were treating their slaves as chattel, and indeed they were. Mm-hmm. But during the military action, three brave slaves stole a boat, they took it across the sound, they turned themselves in during all the chaos and said, look, we're runaway slaves, we're looking for asylum, we're looking for refuge, we want to be protected. And the soldiers took them to General Butler. General Butler listened to their stories. So now, why? Tell, tell me your, what, what your situation is. They said, well, we know that uh, our owner, our slave master, is a Confederate officer. We know that he's getting ready to go to the Deep South. We know that more than likely he's going to take uh, us uh, with him, and we don't want to be separated from our family, and we're turning ourselves in to do to escape all that. And Butler said, well, let me think about that. He said, how have y'all been used? And they said, well, they explained to him that they'd been used for building forts against the United States Army. And the next day, the Confederate officers come to retrieve their slaves. And they have a meeting with General Butler. And they say, under the future slave law, any slaves that run away by law in the United States Constitution have to be returned. And General Butler said, well, that's true. And he was a lawyer. He said, but, you know, here's the deal. What government are you representing? And they said, well, we're the Confederate States of America. He said, well, that law doesn't apply to you guys. That's a United States law. That's not a Confederate States of America law. And said, no, you're not getting your slaves back. He said, not only that, so how are you using these slaves? I bet you're using these slaves to maybe attack my fort. I bet you're using these slaves to build fortifications against me. Well, that, no, I'm not going to let you have these guys back as labor against our military support here. So, no. They are contraband on board. Just like I would seize your cannon, just like I would seize your gun, these slaves are staying here. What is interesting about all that is the phenomena that happened afterwards. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of slaves from as far as the middle of the Commonwealth of Virginia, as far as Maryland, as far as from down south, came to seek refuge here at Fort Monroe. Later on, the Contraband Act we put in place, and from that, we suspect that Abraham Lincoln said, no, it might be time to drop a little document called the Emancipation Proclamation, which, of course, free slaves every place but the United States. Only those slaves that were in states that were in rebellion against our country were free. And then following that, the 13th Amendment. We are in the hotbed of civil rights movement of the 1960s. And then we have a national park established by the first black president of the United States. So starting all the way back from 1619, first Africans arrived in Virginia, all the way through the contraband, all the way through the Emancipation Proclamation, 13th Amendment, civil rights, to having a national monument established here, that's the arc of history that we are proud of, and this is why it's called Fears. As Robin mentioned, 1619 proved to be a pivotal year in American history and for Fort Monroe. In 1619, three significant things happened here in the uh, state of Egypt, or the colony of Egypt. One, which I think is probably the most important, is that the first representative government convened in Jamestown. 
called the General Assembly, and our General Assembly still meets today. It's the oldest, continuous, representative government here in the United States. The second thing that happened, even though there have been women here uh, through the entire time that the colony had been established, they were usually sisters, daughters, or wives of the men who had come. In 1619, it was the first time that they recruited women, single women, to come over here to the colony and to uh, be with the men and, and start families and, and things like that to grow the colony. And the third thing that happened in 1619 is really significant. It's the arrival of the first Africans here in English-speaking America. 1619, Manila, a Dutch man of war, got captured on the open sea. They captured some cargo. Part of that cargo were Africans, more than likely uh, slaves. We don't know that history for a fact. They were brought here to trade goods with. Those Africans disembarked off their ships right here at Point Comfort, and uh, they became the first Africans here in English-speaking America. 1861, the state of Virginia finally decided to join the South. Which is an interesting story in itself in that Virginia really sat on the fence for a long time deciding whether not to go with the Confederacy or go with the, with the United States. But Virginia really struggled. And they met with the General Assembly twice before they made a decision to actually join the Confederacy. Well, once that happened, uh, the capital of the Confederacy down in Montgomery, Alabama, was moved up to the city of Richmond. And the city of Richmond becomes the national capital of the Confederacy of America. That makes every military installation in the Commonwealth of Virginia important. And every military installation within the Commonwealth, except for one, was captured and taken over by the Confederate Army. The one that was not taken over by the Confederate Army is the one that you're standing in today. This is World Footprints Radio. I'm Ian Fitzpatrick. And Tanya and I are on a walking tour inside the Fort Monroe Museum with historian Robin Reed who's sharing the important role that the fort has played in American history. For relevant links and information, visit us at worldfootprints.com. Uh, once the uh, South uh, fell and Jefferson Davis was on the run, he was captured right above the Florida state line uh, in the state of Georgia. He's placed on a boat and brought up here to Fort Monroe, and he's incarcerated in this cell. And we know the cell was set up this way because Dr. Craven, who was the attending military physician on post, uh, wrote a book and did sketches of what the cell looked like. So we know that a bed was here. In fact, we know that this pillow was here. We know that the shelf was here. We know that there was a pipe on the shelf. We know that there was a table here. So we have a pretty good understanding of what this cell looked like. We've been here for about four months inside the cell with two guards inside and guards outside. The lights were left on 24 hours a day for two reasons. One, uh, I guess to really kind of be a pain in his neck, but also they thought he was pretty much suicidal. He'll be here for almost two years. And here's the important thing to remember about this story. He was never tried for treatment. He was indicted, uh, but never had his day in court. One of the reasons he didn't have his day in court is that there was some scholars who thought that quite possibly if he had his day in court, he might be acquitted. And wouldn't that be a kick in the head after 600,000 people lost their lives? Because there is some precedent within the United States Constitution. If you look at the American Revolution as the uh, birth of our nation, certainly the American Civil War from 1861 to 1865 was its bad system. And the fact that we came out of that pretty much intact... Able to bring this nation back together. 
uh, I think speaks volumes to what our founding fathers had in mind. But it also speaks to the reason that Jefferson Davis was never had a stay in court. Park Ranger Kirsten Spaulding joins us and brings the history of Fort Monroe full circle. That arc of history that Robin was talking about from 1619 and the first African-born people coming here to be enslaved were brought to Fort Monroe, then Point Comfort, right? All the way to 1861 and the contraband decision when enslaved peoples really began to see the light at the end of the tunnel and really kind of pushed for freedom, 13th Amendment. We have the last post commander who is a benefactor from Hampton University. Scratch the record for a second because we're going to step back to 1860s again and the Butler School and the Emancipation Oak that is on the campus of Hampton University is where a young lady named Mary Peak taught some of the first enslaved peoples to read and write. And those first freedmen and contraband were taught to read and write on a space that is now Hampton University. And the last post commander of Fort Monroe is a graduate of Hampton University. There are connections and stories here at Fort Monroe that help to tell who we are as a nation and what opportunities of being in America is like. Hampton University, one of the historically black colleges and universities, has an oak tree called the Emancipation Oak, as we learned about. The tree there has a cousin here at Fort Monroe, the Algernon Oak. Come up to the tree and put a hand on the tree. This creature that you're touching, this living thing, is over 500 years old. Now imagine the things that it's seen in 500 years. And as I said, the genome of this tree is related to the genome of the tree that's the Emancipation Oak at Hampton University, under which Mary Peak taught. Deputy. Yes, uh-huh. How have things changed? Well, this is our maximum security prison, and, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, once them still are slammed, there's no more peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. <laughs> <laughs> well, what do you serve the prisoners, then? Well, we just ain't big cooks for them, you know. She's a fried chicken or uh, meatloaf or you name it, <laughs> pork chops. <laughs> oh, she's a very good cook. Just don't eat her pickles. We call them kerosene cucumbers. <laughs> Because... Well, they smell like paint thinner is what they do. <laughs> I don't think you want to ask Aunt B for any more favors after that comment. No. I think you're right. <laughs> so what, what is, tell me about life here in Mayberry. Well, you know, it's a, it's a wonderful town. Uh, the sheriff's a little bit lax in his duties, but uh, <laughs> I'll try to look out for him. He's a good kid. <laughs> And you're here to pick up the slack. That's right. I'm here to pick up the slack. 
Much of America's history is incomplete because the contributions of many Americans have been left out of the narrative. At a recent reception with the Historic Hotels of America Association, Ian and I had an opportunity to learn what is being done to collect and preserve America's history and its important historic hotels. For so long, the organization and historic preservation in the United States has been about the foundational history uh, of of the United States. That that history that was captured by the people who were often presidents or in the ruling class or folks who were running companies and and you know westward expansion. Uh, today, we found that really you know saving all of America's important historic places is reliant on reaching all Americans. And there's been a lot of stories that have left been left out of historic preservation. Uh, the stories of Asian Americans, Latino Americans, and African Americans. Um, have been left out of the historic preservation story. While it's been captured in the history books, the places that have been important to those uh, cultures haven't been celebrated. And so we're working very hard as an organization now to find those places, to work with the people that they are important to, and to elevate their stature in the eyes of all Americans. How important are hotels in a preserving uh, history, preserving culture, and in telling uh, the American story? Sure. Um, 26 years ago, uh, the National Trust for Historic Preservation established the Historic Hotels program. Um, Today, we're a partner of that program with Historic Hotels of America. Um, But we recognized a quarter of of a century ago that hotels are historic places that people can visit. Anyone can walk into the lobby and see the architecture. Anyone can go to the historic restaurants and bars. Um, and, and most people have an opportunity to stay. The Historic Hotels collection um, are everything from you know five-star Michelin-rated uh, hotels to small inns. And it, it really makes historic places accessible to, to all Americans. And that's one of the reasons that we really are behind this partnership and, and help celebrate these places. Dennis, thank you so much. Sure. Thank you. I'm Aaron Sterling with the Morrison-Clark Historic Inn located here in Washington, D.C. We were originally built in 1864 as two uh, separate uh, townhomes owned by Mr. Morrison and Mr. Clark. And in the 1930s, we were purchased by the uh, Women's Army and Navy League. And we were turned into, uh, from two separate townhouses, into the Soldiers, Sailors, and Airmen's Club. And it was a very affordable lodging for the military when they came into town. And... uh, Uh, And we were that for uh, almost 60 years. And we had every first lady came in to do fundraisers at the inn. Um, so we, we, everyone from Mimi Eisenhower Street through Miss Kennedy. Um, and in the 1980s, we were converted into a hotel uh, with 54 rooms. And then in 2015 was a huge year for us. We doubled in size. We expanded into the Chinese Community Church next door to us. So we built on top of and behind it. And speaking of the Chinese community, the architecture of the, the property, I understand, is influenced by Chinese architecture. We did. The front, uh, the Chinese Community Church, which was built in 1957, had this very beautiful, ornate uh, facade to it. And when we were building and expanding into it, it was decided to keep that front facade, to keep that cityscape and the community. Um, we're a historic property. We want to keep as much as we can in line with the community and what the, the 
origins of that of that building. And then as you walk into the two-story lobby, it's a very Asian Victorian decor. So the two Victorian townhomes merged with this Asian theme uh, as a um, respect to the Chinese community church. And you can see it throughout all of the building, the colors, uh, some of the uh, design schemes. Uh, it very much blends old and new. It's beautiful. So for those visiting Washington, D.C. for the first time, or for those of us who have lived here for a number of years, where are you located in D.C.? We actually, it's, we hit all six metro lines uh, within three blocks of the hotel. So primarily, we're, our location is L Street between 10th and 11th. Um, and most notably, we're next to the convention center. Hi, good evening, Tanya and um, Ian. Um, thank you for coming to the Mayflower, Washington, D.C.'s original since 1925. The hotel just celebrated its 90th anniversary, and today we are the longest operating property here in Washington, D.C. They don't make hotels like they did 90 years ago, and this hotel has so many stories um, that really creates a very authentic um, experience here for the D.C. traveler. So, for instance, one of the stories that I can share is that three weeks after the hotel opened in 1925, we were the host site for the um, inauguration ball for Calvin Coolidge. We also hosted every single inauguration all the way up until Ronald Reagan. So today, um, as well as being known as one of the landmark properties in D.C., we are the inaugural hotel. So for somebody coming into the nation's capital and really wanting that historic feeling in a very grand, iconic hotel, there's nowhere else to go. You have to be here at the Mayflower. So, Ron, what is your favorite historical story? Absolutely. That's a great question. So, um, in our Chinese ballroom, there was a state dinner, which Winston Churchill attended. And in the Chinese ballroom, there is a dome. And when you sit underneath the dome, your voice echoes. And it was to the surprise of Winston Churchill because he leaned over to a lady friend next to him, said an off-color joke, however, not thinking that the entire room was going to hear, and they did. It was in every single newspaper from here until London the very next day. Fast forward five decades, I met Winston Churchill's granddaughter in the same space and was able to share that story. So that's one of my favorite moments. Now, when somebody walks into the Mayflower for the very first time, this is a very grand hotel. What would they see? What, what historical elements do you have along the hallway? I think that coming into our hotel um, probably is the most dramatic of all the historic properties in D.C. because you're walking into a lobby that's adorned with gold leafing all over the place. It's two-story. It's got huge chandeliers. And you look down a promenade foyer that spans a whole D.C. city block. So you come into the grandeur and elegance of D.C. of the 1920s. What, what do you love most about the Mayflower? I love most all the unique stories that I get to share with all the travelers from all over the world and having them just feel a part of it when they're here. Thank you. Thank you. We've been talking to Dennis Hockman of the National Trust for Historic Preservation, Aaron Sterling of the Morrison Clark Inn in Washington, D.C., and Ron Key of the Mayflower Hotel, also in Washington, D.C., about this very important topic of 
preservation as it relates to America's grand hotels. So, dear, one of the interesting things I learned at this reception was the bar that you took me to for my birthday, Edgar, within the Mayflower Hotel. I didn't realize that that place was named after J. Edgar Hoover. It's funny just to hear everyone talk about their own respective history, but in particular the Mayflower, how history really comes full circle. And so much of the history of Washington obviously revolves around the presidents and the people who've been in power here, whether it's from these inaugurations to other significant people. Mm. Many of the hotels have a story to tell about uh, the presidents, uh, good, bad, or indifferent. But uh, it's always interesting to see how it all layers into what makes these places part of the other attractions here mm-hmm. in Washington. Mm-hmm. And I, I loved the uh, I loved hearing the walls talk because there were some scandalous stories <laughs> that we uncovered at that evening during Indeed. that evening. Listening to World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. Just ahead, we'll travel through small towns in America and Namibia and introduce you to local folklore and traditions. in America are often overlooked as tourist destinations, but if you really want to experience real Americana, you should go off the beaten path and visit a small town where you can uncover a treasure trove of goodies. Who knows, you could travel back in time with Barney Fife from the Andy Griffith Show and see where he locked up the whole town, or you could launch the discovery of a 17-pound gold nugget that was once used as a doorstop. We had a chance to learn about some interesting small towns at the Travel Media Showcase. What most people don't know is that the Lake of the Ozarks has more coastline than the state of California. Um, so when you go in and out of our coves, um, we're a 54,000-acre lake. 
Um, we're spread out over three counties. We have a beautiful golf trail that uh, is comprised of 13 golf courses. So for an avid golfer, you can play 36 holes a day um, and not burn yourself out trying to get in between courses because everything is located within 30 minutes. Now, is this a protected area, and is there development in the Ozark area? Lake of the Ozarks is a private lake. It is not governed by the Corps of Engineers, so when you buy property at the Lake of the Ozarks, you actually buy lakefront property. Missouri is Joe Duncan talking about Lake of the Ozarks and a very interesting attraction not too far from there in the state capital, the Missouri State Prison in Jefferson City. On any given day, you might have a tour by the deputy warden, you might have somebody who worked in the infirmary, or you might have somebody who was a prison guard. Um, while the facts remain the same about when the prison opened, when it closed, um, the interpretation of the tour is always different. So you get a different perspective every time. Some of the infamous inmates that we had, uh, James Earl Ray, um, escaped a base, basically in a bread truck, and a year later he assassinated Dr. Martin Luther King. Sonny Liston also learned to box in the yard. Here's Megan McConaughey of Columbia, Missouri, home to Mizzou, the University of Missouri, with a very interesting connection to one of our founding fathers. Missouri was part of the Louisiana Purchase, and so there's a big connection to Mizzou when that comes to, you know, our part being part of our history. Thomas Jefferson's original gravestone is actually located on our campus, so he was a big champion of education, and so that sits there to kind of remind us of that connection. And there are a lot of fun things that you can do in these well, small towns. Yeah, I mean, you know, I was born in a small town. I grew up in a small town. There's a lot of wonderful things to experience. You know, when we've traveled through Michigan, my my home state, and gone through the small towns of the Upper Peninsula, you know, to central Michigan, and it's the things that we found that you can't find anywhere else. And certainly a lot of the towns that we visited on this tour really uncovered some things that you can't find anywhere else. It is known as the Grand Central Station of the Underground Railroad. Uh, Catherine and Levi Coffin helped usher 2,000 slaves to freedom. And what it's really interesting about the Levi Coffin House, it was the uh, central point. Uh, slaves came across the Ohio River from Cincinnati, Madison, Indiana, and Jeffersonville, Indiana, came to the Levi Coffin House. And then from there, once they were rested and fed and were provided good clothing and shoes, then they expanded out to Detroit, Fort Wayne, and a small community called Cabin Creek in Indiana, which is no longer there. Who exactly was Levi Coffin? Levi and Catherine Coffin were Quakers. Our area was founded by Quakers. They lived in North Carolina. They did not and, and, and did not approve of slavery, and they wanted to leave that area. So they migrated north to the Richmond area. And once they settled in Newport, which is now Fountain City, it's six miles north of Richmond, they realized that Fountain City was actually, the slaves were coming through there. And there were other Quaker families there, but they really weren't helping. And Levi Coffin said, oh no, oh no, we're helping. And so they built their house. And when they built their house, they had a garret built in the second on the second floor. 
that would house, uh, I think you could get maybe like 15 people in there uh, to hide in case the house was ever searched. But it was never searched, actually. There is a false bottom wagon in the barn. And then there's an indoor well, which was unheard of back in 1847. One really fun story I love is William Bush. He was a fugitive slave that actually had himself shipped to the Carib Levi and Catherine Coffin in a crate. And when he got there, he had his hair was wild, you know, he had this beard, and uh, slaves took on a new name once they were free. So Catherine named him Bush because he was bushy. <laughs> his hair was wild, you know. And so he stayed uh, there in Fountain City and helped Levi Cough. He is buried in our cemetery there in Fountain City. His great, great, great granddaughter is a tour guide. Nancy Sartain of Richmond, Indiana, with an interesting piece of history about the Underground Railroad. This is World Footprints with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick covering the Travel Media Showcase recently held in Bloomington, Indiana, where members of the media are learning more about the treasures that small towns uncover. The first time that tomato juice was ever served as a drink was served in French Lick. Um, Chef Louis Perrin actually ran out of oranges for breakfast and had nothing else to juice, so he looked over and he saw a pile of tomatoes. They juiced the tomatoes, served it for breakfast, and there it is. Uh, did the chef also add a little vodka later on? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he could have, most definitely. Alex Pierce, a visit French Lick and West Baden, Indiana. Where else would you learn about that? The you know the origins of that juice, or where else would you go drag car racing as we did in a small town? We are best known for motorsports, home of Charlotte Motor Speedway, uh, Z-Max Dragway, the only four-lane all-concrete drag strip in the world, and uh, the dirt track. But what really makes us unique as a motorsports destination is that we're home to a lot of the top NASCAR race teams. So what that means is that um, whether you're a race fan or not, you can go in and you can check out the behind the scenes. You can see the drivers working, uh, or you can see the drivers sometimes in the shops. You can see the crews working on the cars. A lot of the race shops have great museums where you can go in and maybe see a race car that won at a specific track and still has the, uh, the dirt and the dust and the confetti and champagne stuck all over it from being in Victory Circle. Julie Henson of Cabarrus County, North Carolina, home of the Charlotte Motor Speedway. Ah, the Gold Nugget. North Carolina, <laughs> Cabarrus County, and uh, the Gold Nugget that... His family, they didn't realize its value. And yeah. We are also the home of America's first documented discovery of gold. Yes. So in um, so it wasn't California. Uh, no, no, it was definitely on the East Coast. And um, one of our smaller towns is Midland, North Carolina. In 1799, uh, 12-year-old Conrad Reed was on his family's land and came across a 17-pound gold nugget. But um, is who he finds this gold nugget, and um, you know his family checks it out, and they actually end up using it as a doorstop. And it's back to Mayberry, Josh Duke of Hendricks County, Indiana. We have the Mayberry Cafe, which is in our county seat in Danville, Indiana. And it's a a destination restaurant that's all about the Andy Griffith Show. And so because of that, a couple of years ago, they started the Mayberry in the Midwest Festival, um, second weekend of May. And uh, so we're really known for kind of that Mayberry uh, Americana. But we're also a motorsports destination. We're close to Indianapolis. Obviously, you have the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. 
but we have our own speedway in Hendricks County. It's called Lucas Oil Raceway. They have a, a small track oval there as well as a drag strip, and that drag strip is... Um, we have the biggest drag racing event in the world every Labor Day weekend called U.S. Nationals, and it is on that drag strip. It is the it is the one race that all of the pro dragsters want to win every year. Josh, I don't want to date myself, but I probably will with this question. As somebody who grew up with the Andy Griffith uh, show, was that show based on your area, or did you just kind of adopt the, the theme? We actually adopted the theme. Um, there is a Mayberry, North Carolina, and that's where um, Andy Andy Griffith grew up, and so that's kind of he loosely based his show on his hometown in North Carolina. Uh, the owners of the Mayberry Cafe, Brad and Christine Bourne, they bought the Main Street Cafe. It was then the Main Street Cafe um, about 20 years ago, and uh, they wanted they loved the Mayberry, they loved the Andy Griffith show, they loved the the theme of Mayberry, and so then they created the Mayberry Cafe. And so literally, if you go into the Mayberry Cafe. It's got 24-7 running airings of the Andy Griffith Show on the TVs. You can see it through wherever you're at. You can see the show on the TVs. They have memorabilia in there. They have a uh, an old sheriff's car that sits out front that you can get your picture with. A lot of people like getting their picture with that. And they just do a lot of fun things there. So if you are a fan of the Andy Griffith Show, you definitely need to make a trip. And we have people that come once a year from all over the country just because they love the show and they come and eat at the Mayberry Cafe. It's just, it's become, uh, you know, a memorable event for them. We were able to take a trip back into um, Mayberry, Andy Griffin's show in Mm -hmm. Mayberry. And sure enough, met Barney Fife, um, threatened to lock us up in the prison where he locked the whole town up in one episode. And that was just, you know, where else could you do that in, in such an authentic way? up here. I mean, well, Otis a- comes in every Friday night. We just give him a key. <laughs> yeah, he's our town drunk. Right. Yeah, he just checks in and bless his heart. You know, he's, he's a special person and we love him, but he's got a little drinking problem. <laughs> and then we've got Ernest T. Bass. He comes down in town once in a while. You remember him? Yes. He's a nut. Ernest T. Bass is a nut. Now, they, they told me he went back up in the hills to kill a mockingbird. Now, one time, I will tell you that uh, Andy just about fired me because I locked up everybody in town while he was gone. <laughs> I locked up the mayor and Aunt Bay and even little Opie. I had him. But I got them all dead to rights. They all broke the law. <laughs> so what do you have to say to people outside of Mayberry here? You know, Mayberry is a wonderful town that uh, I think everybody would like to visit. It still maintains a lot of the values and, and a lot of the uh, things that we wish were still available to us today. Mm. Where you say you're somebody's friend, you really are their friend. And uh, 
and there's no uh, pretense to it. You just uh, you live your life and you care about other people and you and you spend your days lifting other people up. That's what Mayberry's all about. Oh, bless. Thank you. De- thank you, Debbie. Thank you, dear. You are beautiful. Just outside the coastal town of Swakamun, Namibia, remnants of apartheid still exist in the surrounding districts, like the democratic resettlement community that was created to provide low-cost housing to black Namibians. There are also several shanty towns, and tours are offered to visitors, so we took the opportunity to visit the district of Modessa, made famous by Angelina Jolie, to get a sense of the real Namibia through the voices of Modessa residents. In the Edo culture, we say Mama Gloria. Mama means mother, yeah? I think it's the same back home as well. <laughs> in the hero culture, the uncle is the most important person in the family, not the father or the mother. The uncle is the most important person in the family. They've got two types of beliefs. The first belief is known to be the holy fire, and then they've got Christianity as well. What the lady is wearing, this is a traditional custom for the hero. Uh, it also has a special meaning. The hero, they've got three types of marriages as well. First marriage, second marriage, and the arranged marriage. In the hero culture, the men are very fortunate. One man could get married to more than one wife, so which means they practice polygamy. The hero people are coming from central part of Namibia. They are known to be big cattle farmers. They are farming of cows. So traditional food for the hero is beef meat with maize meal, milk from the cow. Also they eat with maize milk. The fat also they eat with maize milk. The skin they would use for decoration in the house, sometimes like for meat or like for leather jacket and so on. Yeah. The hero women, their hats have what resembles horns, which correlates with their tradition as cow herders. And so their hats represent the horns of a cow, and the body of their dress, which is puffy, represents the fat body of a cow. We had a chance to experience two of the townships on the outskirts of uh, Swakatmun, which is a, a tourist town that, uh, as we've discussed, is focused on German culture and and architecture and so forth. But mm-hmm. these two places, the Democratic Resettlement Community and Mundessa Township, actually house two-thirds of the people who live in Swakopmund, which means a significant majority of the population is living in poverty. And that surprised me, considering the wealth of the, the city itself, Swakopmund. Uh, definitely a tale of two cities. Mm-hmm. Right, beach resort and shantytown. Perhaps if a person is coming from the village over to Swakopmund, but then you're not having friends or relatives to live with in Swakopmund or in Mondesa, you then have to go over to the local authority, register with the government, they will come out of the air and mark off a piece of land for you to live here. To live here, it's totally free, but there's no water and no electricity at the house. There's only street lights and water points. Plus, minus 7,000 people living in this sector, and every day new and new people are coming as well. Um... There's no water and electricity, there's only street lights and water points, sanitation, there's like a septic tank toilet for two houses, for uh, one toilet for two houses, yeah? A septic, they share one toilet. And also if you've got a house, you can build what size house you want to, in the uh, very same plot they've given you, what size, you can build two, extra, five rooms, or you can build a floor up, depends how much money you have. Right next to me, this is the water pump, it's a prepaid system, yeah? 
10 cents per liter. This is why I think it's very expensive. So there's three well up on each street, one at each corner and one in the center of the street. Therefore, the people call this the water ATM. This entire realm of shanty towns is, is somewhat controversial, particularly as a genre of tourism, a poverty tourism, where uh, tourists are encouraged to go into these neighborhoods to see how poor people actually live. But there's also a lot of pride in these communities, too. Right, and I actually appreciated understand, knowing the backstory of the DRC, the Democratic Resettlement Community, and Mondesa, how those communities came to be, why they came to be, and seeing real people, indigenous Namibians, mm -hmm. during their everyday life. And there were some wonderful moments that we shared, children singing to us. I mean, they, they showed a lot of joy. We made a stop in a local herb shop, <laughs> where medicinal shop, lots of uh, medicinal... A medicine lady, I yeah. guess, is what you'd call her. And they, what did they refer to her as? Um, Maro Auguste is her name, and Maro means aunt, and she's a Nama lady. And so she had a number of spices that we passed around, including, and, and these spices are used for all different purposes, from headaches to thirst if you get lost in a desert. There was a root there that had a dual purpose of quenching your thirst and giving you men the benefits of a Viagra pill. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> I don't know where you go with that. <laughs> There's also another route that is currently being produced in the United States. So this is the house of the Nama lady. For greetings, we say, and then we do a three handshake. The lady's name is Akuste, yeah? But for respect, we say Maro Akuste. Maro means aunt, so aunt Akuste, yeah? Maro Akuste is a Nama lady, but apart from being a Nama lady, she's also herbalist. She will present us some herbs, and then you are going to ask what is it good for, and so on, yeah? Uh, none of this medicine is having English names. So now we are going to start with our click lesson. The first one is called Hanap. Hanap. This is very good for flu and cold. You prepare it in tea form, yeah? What is The following one is called Gu Uru. Very good uh, for throat infections and dry cough, yeah? For flu and cold. Uh, Hanap. Hanap. The next one is called Uha. Uha. This is very good. This is very good. Once you are sick, you've got no appetite, you have to drink this one. It helps to boost up appetite. So it's a better booster. After drinking that one, you can eat like a lion. And then the next one is called Hopap. Yeah? Hopap. If you've got an appetite booster, you need something to counter it as well. Yeah? This is called Hopap. What happens? Yeah to reduce body weight. You, you, this is family to cactus, but it's dried, yeah? So on the side, it's having thorns and dried. So if you take a piece like this, swallow it, it gets stuck in your throat, 
two weeks, you don't want to eat anything, the body will go slim if it not die. I'm just joking, yeah? You want to grind into powder, if it becomes powder, you apply it on top of food. They are exporting this one to the States. They make tablets for slimming as well. Yeah. The English name for this one is Hoodia. The next one, you find it in the southern part of Namibia. It's the Nara plant, and then this is the root of the Nara plant. It's called Numa. In any language, you do not say root. You identify where the root is coming from. It's a apple tree's root, banana tree's root, melon tree's root, and so on, yeah? So if the plant's name is Nara, and then the root's name is Numa, what is the name of the root? Nara Numa. Nara Numa is very good for high blood pressure, to thin the blood, to clean the body internally. This is also known as traditional Vuga Vuga, Aphrodisia, yeah? Viagra. Also, when you're lost in the, in the desert, you don't have any water and so on, when it's attached to the, the tree itself, yeah? You can sort of like bend it and squeeze it and so you can drink the water of it. It takes away the thirst, but still it's very bitter. What's it for? Fluke, uh, sorry, uh, for high blood pressure to clean the body internally. Also takes away thirst if you drink it in the desert. And also Viagra. Rupert Kham is the next one. Rupert Kham. This is the seed, the, uh, the potato of it. This one is very good for joint problems and arthritis. Export to Germany, they make gel and tablets out of this one. The English name for this one is Devil's Claw. Babe, throughout our trip to Namibia, we were greeted with song, and we met this wonderful group on our tour to Modessa one day called Global Galore. And before we close out this segment of our show, I think it would be nice to share a medley of some of the songs they performed for us. Let's do that. Simbolanga was sung back in the days when our great icon, Nelson Mandela, was in prison at the Robben Islands. So this song was basically sung by um, the natives there to like ask, where did you take our leader? Where did you take Nelson Mandela? Asimbonanga.
explored a lot of history on today's show, whether visiting small towns in Indiana and North Carolina or Namibia, as we mm. talked about Swakopmund. These are places that are really rich in history that tell a lot about where people have come from. Yeah, you know, it was, it was interesting to see the theme of history unfold as we put the show together, but there certainly was that that common theme and I know I learned a lot in exploring these different communities and the travels that we've undertaken and the people we've spoken to. I've learned a lot that I didn't know before. One of the things that's great about learning of some of these places, we've traveled to some of these places before and haven't given them any thought, uh, whether we've been on the interstate, and a lot of times the interstates just pass by these places Mm. that have really had a great story to tell, whether it's about American history or about the history of a community, wherever it is. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and that's a valuable lesson that we should all take away from today's show is that when you're driving, when you're going even to the next town, if you see a, a sign that shows an interesting attraction, you know, maybe it's a bird sanctuary, stop and explore the community. You'd be really surprised in, in what you'd find. Yeah. And really touched on some sensitive topics. Uh, the issue of slavery came up uh, mm-hmm. with respect to learning about Fort Mon- Monroe in Virginia and just seeing that arc of history going from slaves to President Obama bringing in that fort as a national monument mm-hmm. to really exploring a uh, uh, you know, and a very special part of Namibia's uh, culture and, and people as we visited the townships outside of Swakopmund, you know, to see the contrast and, right. and knowing that we've come so far in some ways, but yet we haven't. And so there's 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 always that tension out out there about uh, progress and 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 wanting to see growth and, you know, people advancing. Well, and hopefully through traveling, you know, when these stories are, are told, when these stories are discovered, um, that will inspire change. And that's a purpose of World Footprints in a lot of ways, you know, to inspire people to not only explore the world, um, but to also be a, a change agent for, for good. We are fortunate that we get a chance to experience a lot of different things all over the world, and we get to see what kind of ties them together, whether, mm-hmm. you know, learning about people and seeing how much we have in common, as you often like like to say about us. That we all share a common humanity mm-hmm. at our core. In thinking back through our show, one of the things I forgot to mention that I think is a really cool fact in is that in Danville, Indiana, Don Knotts' daughter, Don Knotts is the actor who played Barney Fife on The Andy Griffith Show, but his daughter actually comes to the Mayberry Cafe uh, once a year, I think, during the Mayberry, Mayberry Festival. And, um, and I heard that she's really wonderful, she's funny, she looks like him, she acts like him, her personality uh, is similar, and I thought that was just a really, that would be a really cool thing to, uh, to see. Um, I happen to be a Don Knotts fan and uh, loved, loved meeting the Barney Fife character. That's a wrap for today. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we look forward to taking you on another journey next time on World Footprints Radio. World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tonya Fitzpatrick is a production of World Footprints Media, Silver Spring, Maryland. 
The multi-award-winning radio show can be heard around the globe on iHeartRadio, Stitcher, iTunes and more. Visit worldfootprints.com for a complete list. World Footprints Radio is a leading voice in socially responsible travel. At worldfootprints.com, you'll find an archive of past broadcasts, travel news, reviews, and information you can use to deepen your travel experience. Listen, learn, and live it at worldfootprints.com.